buying behavior has changed. Prospects don't click on links and emails anymore, and they don't watch the videos you spend hours creating every week. Instead, send personalized gifts and memes using Vidyu. You can quickly create engaging, personalized content that immediately grabs your prospect's attention, helps you stand out in the inbox, and does it all without forcing them to click anything or go anywhere. Head over to vidyou.io slash salescast to sign up for free and spend less time getting your messages across and more time selling. In the world of sales, you either sink, swim, or break through to the next level. My name's Colin Mitchell, and this is Sales Transformation, a new kind of sales show designed to bring you through the epic, life-changing moments of elite sellers so you can experience your own sales transformation. All right, welcome to another episode of Sales Transformation. I'm very excited for today's guest. Um, I've got Megan Bowen, who was put on my radar by Scott Lee. So thank you, Scott Lee. Um, Megan helps create conditions for people, customers, and companies to be successful. She's an operator, problem solver, and customer advocate who has a proven track record of building and leading teams to scale and exceed. And she's currently over at Refine Labs. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, excited to dig into the topic we, we chatted about too. I think it'll be a fun one for your listeners. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Stick around. <laughs> this is not something that we've uh, talked about very often. I don't even know if we've talked about it at all. So um, it should be fun. So stick around. Uh, but before we get into the to the uh, kind of planned out topic that we planned out a couple uh, minutes ago, uh, <laughs> we do no planning here. We just show up and have fun. That's all that's required. So um, I want to dig into a little bit more of your journey. Like where did your, you know, where'd your journey start? Look, bring us there. And I'm sure there'll be lots of things that we can learn along the way before we get to our planned out topic. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, actually my, I would say like my professional journey out of high school actually started in sales. Mm -hmm. Um, I cut my teeth selling Cutco cutlery, the world's finest set of knives. (laughs) And so um, that was, you know, yeah, I guess it's kind of an MLM scheme, but you really learn like core sales fundamentals. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I have had so many people on that cut their teeth in Cutco. (laughs) And I mean, people, I mean, yeah, you you cut your teeth, you get your teeth kicked in, (laughs) whatever. I've heard it all. I've heard all the stories, all the Cutco stories. So what was your experience starting uh, with Cutco? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I was, you know, definitely drinking the Kool-Aid and was, you know, an ambitious 18 year old and excited to start making my own money. So I really jumped in and did all of the things that they tell you to do. Right. And so I think it was really my first experience, like truly learning how to cold prospect, how to ask for referrals, um, setting your own meetings. You learn persistence. You get comfortable with rejection. Uh, I remember one of the like, um, one of the things that they kind of go through in their like brainwashing session with you is, you know, no doesn't mean no. Like huh. you have to say no five times before you should accept the no. And there was all of this training around how to ask for the same, like ask for the clothes or ask the same question, like so many different ways to like get them to say yes. And so 
I think, uh, you know, persistence, like, you know, being fearless, like accepting rejection. Um, those were all some of my kind of life lessons from my Cutco chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that you said uh, the brainwash session, aka the training program. Exactly. Right. Where at the end of it, you're like, here's $100 for my set of knives. And you're like, wait a minute, did I just pay them? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So how long did you do that for? did it for about a year and it w- it was actually really in hindsight I can't believe I did this but I started building my book of business in Los Angeles and then uh like 4 or 5 months later I moved down to San Diego to start college and so I basically had to start over the way oh. you grow your clientele is by like selling to all your family and friends getting their referrals getting their referrals and so I had gotten to the point where I was starting to meet people that I didn't know at all, right? Friends of friends of friends of friends. Um, And then had to go down to San Diego and start over from scratch. And so I was able to do that. um, And then I eventually moved to New York. And then that's when I I, uh, took a different turn. But I did it for about a year in LA and San Diego. You didn't want to build out another Cutco territory on the East Coast. Yeah, it was hard. And I was like, I think I'm ready to like, try something different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you know, there's some there's some, some good and some bad things that you you learn uh, in in those early sales jobs, myself included, you know, I think that was that was the training, you know, you got to hear people say no five or five times before they say no. And, you know, my first sales training was like, you know, you throw out an offer. And then if they don't buy, you throw out another offer. And if they don't buy, you change the subject, try to build more rapport and then throw out another offer. And then I never forget it. My manager always said, if you don't get a sale, you better get a commitment for a future order. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it's hardcore for sure. Yeah. Um, um, but I love that. I feel like it was sales fundamentals and I took that with me, you know, throughout my career. I then moved to New York and um, this is a fun story, but I'll give you like the quick highlights. I basically ended up trying to apply for a job at a hair salon, did not get the job, got called back about six weeks later they had hired someone. It didn't work out. They remembered me because I was persistent in following up. Mm. Um, but I was like a hippie California girl trying to get a job at a, a fancy Upper East Side Manhattan hair salon. And so they ended up like wanting to like make me over before they would give me a job. Oh but it was awesome. And I did that job while I finished up college, just making hair appointments, you know, being at the front desk. Um, and then uh, eventually from there, a client offered me a job at a nonprofit. Um, and then that was kind of a bridge to then uh, for me to get into my first startup and working for an ed tech company in New York City um, as an account manager. And that's when uh, I kind of got into the account management customer success uh, world. Okay. Tell me, what was that like going from... Um you know, cut code to something different to, you know, into like tech and account management. What, what it was, I imagine that was a difficult transition, a lot of new things to learn. Yeah. A lot of new things to learn, but it was, um, it was exciting. And so I, I got a degree in business. I had my jobs that kind of got me through college to pay the bills. And so this, uh, you know, account management job at, uh, E-Chalk, this ed tech company was kind of like, I felt like my first like big, big career job, right. At a startup. I did that job for seven years. 
And um, it really allowed me to like deeply understand the account management function. It was everything from implementation to, uh, you know, retention activities to training to renewal to upsell. Um, and so it really covered everything from like customer service, customer success, like traditional account management. I was able to leverage a lot of my sales chops in the mm. renewal and upsell uh, components. Um, but doing that role for so long really helped create a strong foundation of mastery for that discipline. I was mm. ambitious, so I would get antsy and I'd want to get promoted and go to the next thing. Um, but in hindsight, I'm really glad I was in that role for so long because it really allowed me to hone my craft um, over a almost seven year period. Wow, that's a long time to stay in, in one role. Yeah, and from there, um, my journey kind of takes an interesting turn. I uh, I discovered the company ZocDoc. This was back in 2012. I was like, this idea is amazing. You book your doctor's appointment online. Everybody's going to do that. Um, yeah. They were also fairly early days. And so I tried to get a job there um, and interviewed for a few different roles, but they basically offered me a customer support agent job, entry level. Um, arguably, I was overqualified for it, but I was mm. excited about the company. So I took the job. And when I got there, I realized they didn't even have a post-sale function. They had a product and tech team, they had a sales team, and then they had this big customer support team that just was picking up phones and answering emails all day long. Mm. So after about nine months on the phone, I realized um, they keep hiring people because there are all these problems with the patient and the doctor experience, but there's no post-sale function. And like, we could actually prevent the majority of these problems from happening if we onboarded people and we had that post-sale function uh, established at the company. And so I was actually able to uh, put together a business case based on my experience being on the front lines for about nine months um, and uh, got the opportunity to actually build out the post-sale function at ZocDoc. And so that was my first opportunity building a team um, and uh, was really crazy, but really exciting. Everything happened really fast there. So I built a team of like zero to 25 people in like 18 months mm -hmm. um, and all of the process and tools and systems and playbooks that go along with setting up a team. Um, and that was when I really realized how much I loved team building and, and people management. Um, and from there, my next chapters really, you know, continued down that track. Wow. Okay. So many interesting things there. Um, the one thing that really sticks out to me is like, it's pretty bold, right? To take a job that you're overqualified for because you just love, you know, the work that they're doing. Not a lot of people have the guts to do that. It was a risk. I took a over 50% pay cut. Um, most of my family and friends were like, this is crazy. Why are you doing this? Um, but I, I knew the startup world. I was like, just because this is what my job is right now, there's a lot of opportunity here. So I, I, I took a risk, but it was in my mind, it was like an, it was a smart risk that um, I wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen, but I felt that there would be an opportunity that I would be able to capitalize on. And luckily it worked out that way. Yeah. I was going to say there must have been a level of confidence that you knew there was going to be something else for you to do inside there. And then um, how, lo how long did it take for you to realize, um, you know, to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together that like if we built out this post-sell function that it would solve a lot of things? It was about six months into my job because I was literally just uh, talking to doctors and patients all day and I was able to like notice trends. Wow, it's like these five things that everybody calls about. 
And all of these things are actually preventable if we did X, Y, or Z. And so after about six months, I was able to like document and synthesize those trends and like kind of realized what needed to happen. And then it took a couple of months after that of kind of internal campaigning and kind of advocating for this. And then finally the right people, um, you know, agreed and uh, created some space for me and an opportunity. Basically, they were like, if you think we should do this, like, do you want to do it? And I was like, yes, I do. And uh, they let me. Thank you for asking. Let me run with it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So that's your first time building on a team. And that's when you really found a passion for like building team and culture and stuff like that. Um, Was there any challenges of like building a team, you know, quickly in a new function, new department? Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. Um, I think I, I love building from scratch, but there are tons of challenges. Um, recruiting is really hard. Um, also, when you're you know starting from nothing, you really have to be thoughtful about how you can't do all of the things at once. And so it's really thinking at what are what are the key foundational elements when you're building a team from scratch to get in place in the beginning and what do you have to do as you scale so things don't start to break down. And so for me, it was really initially getting the right people on the early team that would be capable of stretching beyond job description to do what needed to be done to get us through the build phase. Um, then it was starting to layer in, you know, tools and systems and documentation so that as we were scaling the team, we had the right infrastructure in place to support the scale, right? Um, And then I also think a lot of it is just trial and error. Like, you don't always exactly know what needs to happen, but someone has to be the one that like throws paint on the canvas, right? Like do something, learn, and then change and evolve. And um, I think that process of just like biasing to action, kind of doing something, learning, and then uh, adjusting from there, um, and and embracing that as like an ongoing process as you build um, was was my experience there. And I've definitely taken that with me as I built other teams and companies um, in the future. Yeah. And really from there, I I after ZocDoc, I went to Grubhub Seamless and they had a similar situation, although they were a much more mature business mm. a sales team um, and a support team. But they had no post sale function. And so they had recruited me and basically like, we need to build a B2B account management function. I was like, I just did that. And (laughs) so I went there and I did it again um, and did it for a business that had achieved a lot more maturity and scale. Um, Was there for the IPO, which was super exciting. And Mm. then uh, they went on to acquire a bunch of new companies. And so in addition to building out the team, I also had a lot of experience with um, integrating acquired companies into the into the kind of the main company, which was really interesting, moving customers over, sunsetting brands, integrating teams. And so a lot of really interesting experiences around change management and M&A. Wow, that there, I'd imagine that uh, is a challenging task. Mm hmm. Yeah, very challenging, but learned a lot about how to like preserve customer revenue, how to think about migrating customers from one platform to another. Um, you know, definitely had a lot of challenges there that allowed us to, as we tackled each acquired company, learn and, and do better. Um, but I think for me, it, it was really um, interesting. Uh, for me, it was really a lot of core change management principles. So how to really understand the people that need to go through change, how to communicate effectively, how to mitigate risk. Um, whenever change happens, there are always problems. And so just yeah. like 
being willing to have the rocky phase of the change that inevitably will happen. You can do things to smooth it over and to mitigate risks, but just kind of like understanding that that's part of the process and that's okay. Um, so yeah, that was a great experience. And then I had a four year run there, which was really fun. The company got really big and I was missing building. And mm-hmm. so I then went to manage by Q and they were like, we need someone to build out an account management team. I'm like, I've done this twice. <laughs> and so <laughs> I went there and I built out their account management function. And then that's when my scope really scaled. And so I started at Managed by Q as the director of account management. And then I ended up as the chief operating officer, took over sales, marketing, operations. Um, and then we uh, uh, had, uh, we were, Managed by Q was acquired by WeWork. Mm. Uh, which was how that story ended, um, which was like really exciting for a minute. And then it was like kind of dramatic because of all the WeWork stuff. Um, yeah. And ultimately post that acquisition, it um, it was kind of the beginning of the end for Q, unfortunately. That wasn't the intent, but that was kind of how things played out. Um, but that was really when I um, really uh, went from managing just a team and, and predominantly post-sale account management Um, to really managing all go-to-market functions. And so it gave me a a much broader appreciation for how marketing, sales, customer success, and how all of those have to work together with operational support um, to achieve company revenue goals. And so that was a great experience and really made me want to be more part of like the broad company building. All of these teams are important. They all have to play well together. Um, and so that was a great learning experience at Q. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a, what an incredible journey. Um, (laughs) I, I mean, I'd imagine when you first started building teams in this way, in this post, these post sales, you know, teams and functions, and, um, there wasn't a lot, probably a lot of resources or things. And it was a lot of just, you know, like you said, trying things, figuring things out, testing, (laughs) improving. And then each time it maybe got a little bit easier after you had more experience with it. Right. Yeah. And well, it was interesting because I when I went from ZocDoc to Grubhub, I was like, oh, I'm just going to I'll do all the things I did at ZocDoc and I'm going to do them here at Grubhub. And I ran into mistakes because it was like you can't just rip one playbook from one company and just paste it into another. And so that was an important lesson of, yeah, there are fundamental things that are consistent, but every context is different. And so um, after that experience, I was much more thoughtful about understanding the context and the customer and then taking the right things from my past experience while integrating the realities of my new context. So that was an important lesson um, because you can't just take your playbook from company to company and expect that it's going to work the same way. Well, also, you know, things are changing, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, playbooks that, you know, worked two, three oh. years ago, maybe not as relevant today. I mean, what have you seen over your course of, you know, building out these, you know, high performing teams and, and, and th- from scratch and integrating other teams with different cultures? And like, what are you seeing that's, you know, changing from, you know, what worked before and isn't working now? And, you know, what do these teams need to be doing? Yeah, so I would um, I want to tackle that question from kind of like two perspectives, um, and I think I can like get us to uh, the fun topic that we wanted to squeeze yeah. into this uh, conversation. And so I would say one is how you think about your like company building and your people strategy, and then the other is how you're thinking about your go to market strategy for customer acquisition and retention and growth. And so I think out of all of my experiences, and I think something that I um, 
have been extremely intentional about it, Refine Labs, as we've been building this company from the ground up, is how much your people impact everything. Mm-hmm. The customer experience, the company's you know revenue growth and success. Um, and if you actually um, overly focus on doing the right things for your people, how a lot of your customer outcomes and company outcomes will happen as a result. Um, If you empower your people, if you bring the right people in the organization, if you have a compelling vision and mission that they all wanna get behind, if you create trust and psychological safety so people feel comfortable taking risks and trying new things and pushing the boundaries, um, if you give people feedback and recognition, um, opportunities for um, achievement and growth, these are all of the necessary ingredients that if you can create those conditions and get the right people doing the right things, um, that that, like as a leader, that's what I focus on the most. Um, And not that I ignore everything else, but I've realized that everything comes down to your team. And if you get the right team, you have the right vision, you provide the right clarity uh, on goals, you give them the right resources and things that they need, and then let them do their thing, that you're gonna achieve the outcomes that you want for your customers and your business um, by over-focusing on that. So I think that philosophy and like company building and basically I like to use the equation people success is what equals customer success is what equals company success. Um, And that unfortunately I've been a part of a lot of companies where they make decisions with shareholders in mind or what's in the best interest of the company. And I'm like, I want to flip that paradigm and say like, actually, if you make decisions that are in the best interest of your people, you're going to achieve the company outcomes that you want to have. Um, So it's a mindset shift um, and one that I think is really critical and that I hope more and more company builders and founders and CEOs think about when they're starting their own companies. Mm. So I'm curious to see, you know, because I know I'm thinking, you know, there's companies that are in different places. Maybe, you know, there's companies that maybe do have the right people strategy and are thinking that way from the beginning. Probably there's a lot that maybe didn't, don't have the right people strategy, aren't putting their people first, don't understand that full circle. If, you know, if they put their people first, then it's going to, you know, um, achieve all of the customer goals, company goals, and so on. How does a company, you know, what do they do if they're in a place where they need to change a lot of things to put that as the primary focus? Yeah, it's certainly hard to change if the organization has been built without that mindset. Um, And typically what I've seen is the root cause of why this is not the case is because typically there's an extreme amount of pressure from investors or a board um, to achieve unrealistic growth outcomes. And that's where you see well-intentioned founders and CEOs in a really tough spot, potentially making poor decisions or decisions that are more short-term focused that could potentially have a negative impact on the long-term to their their people or their company. So I don't think people want to make these bad decisions, but unfortunately I think this very common scenario will happen and then people end up in that that place and um, feel as if they have no choice. I like to say you always have a choice, mm. um, but they kind of feel that they're stuck and need to hit some short-term crazy 
growth goal to keep the company alive. And so I think that's the source of why a lot of people don't do it. I think if you're going to change, you need to have control of your own destiny. You need to have the right mindset. You need to listen to your your most important customer is your team, your employees. Um, So you need to talk to them, understand what's broken, what needs to be fixed um, and and commit to doing that. Um, But I'm not going to lie and say making that shift if you're not already going in that direction is easy because it's very hard. Where's a good place to start if they're like, crap, we've been doing this all wrong. We've been maybe growing like crazy and haven't paid enough attention to this or the other scenario. Hey, we've raised a bunch of money um, and we got all this pressure and we're making decisions to try to hit these, you know, kind of unrealistic expectations. Um, And we now understand we need to focus on this. Maybe they've heard this. Maybe they've heard, you know, you before talking about this and like what, what ripping their hair out. What do we do? Where do we start? Yeah, so I think there's two places to start. I would say one is talk to your team. So whether it's through surveys or conversations, you need to get a pulse of what the perception is of what uh, what's wrong, what's going wrong, what's going well from your team. Um, so many people don't do that effectively. It's like talk yeah. to people; they'll tell you what's up. Um, and well, then even if well, even if like you haven't created a safe space for them to speak up, give feedback that's even a bit of a challenge, right? Like this, you know, kind of out of left field, like, oh, now you want to hear what I have to say. And people, there hasn't been like enough trust established for them to maybe give you candid feedback and feel that they're going to be heard or that there's actually going to be some change made. Correct. And that it starts with the, the top, right? And this is where, you know, leading with vulnerability can be powerful and acknowledging that uh, leadership acknowledging they're not happy with where we are and that we need we do need to make a change and that potentially we haven't created a safe space, but that we want to learn and we're listening now. Um, the other thing, and maybe as part of this, is taking a hard look at your goals and incentives, because um, typically that's what creates toxic like toxicity at companies. Um, unrealistic goals, conflicting incentives. That's when you have people afraid of for their jobs, blaming other people, um, focused on hitting their quota at the expense of their teammate or their customer. Um, and so most of those poor behaviors can typically be rooted back to uh, misaligned goals or conflicting incentives. Um, so those are the two things that I would focus on. Um, but again, like there's no easy fix here because if you're if you're needing to course correct or um, take a toxic culture and try to clean it up, um, those things don't happen overnight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. The other thing I was going to bring up is um, how you think about your go to market strategy. And I think that one of, you know, I grew up in the startup world, you know, working at startups since 2006. And certainly in the early, you know, 2000s coming up to the, you know, 2010, um, it was like the predictable revenue playbook, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, get a bunch of SDRs, get a bunch of AEs, do a bunch of outbounding. Um, you know, here's our sales funnel. We need to have X number of conversations and we're going to win this many deals and we'll have this much revenue and just scale your people so that you can, you know, play the numbers game and then hit your revenue targets. And, um, and there wasn't a lot of emphasis on customer success. That movement's really been building over the last several years. Um, marketing had a much different focus. And I think the B2B buying landscape specifically has changed dramatically. And so I think that old go-to-market 
strategies that were heavily reliant on outbound sales to achieve targets, I think, um, are just really misguided right now. I think that you need to have a really healthy balance across marketing sales and customer success when thinking about your whole company growth. Um, and so it's really having, um, you know, buyer centric demand gen and marketing strategies that actually cater to how B2B buyers actually make buying decisions today. Um, and in fact, it actually gets them through I would typically say like 80% of the buying process and really re-articulating the purpose of a salesperson. It's not to talk to as many people as possible and convince them to buy. It's to talk to highly qualified buyers um, as a subject matter expert and have a much more uh, you know, mutually beneficial conversation around fit and whether the partnership makes sense. Um, and then... Every, all, every B2B SaaS company is obsessed with NRR, net revenue retention right now. Oh, by the way, you can actually like maintain and grow in a much more sustainable way if you actually just keep your customers um, <laughs> and expand with your customers, right? And oh, how do you do that well? Great customer success, right? And mm -hmm. so um, sales is important, but I think really bringing marketing and customer success and giving them much more of a, a focus in your overall go-to-market strategy is what is actually going to create sustainable high growth for your business. Um, and so I think um, people really need to like throw out a lot of the old playbooks from 2005 um, and start adjusting their approach. And if you think about like zooming back out from the two points that I just made, if you're building a company and you think about your people first and then you have an appropriate go-to-market strategy that is aligned to how the market is behaving today, like that's how you're going to build a successful company. Um, and oh, by the way, you could probably do that bootstrapped without any outside investment. And then you have full control over your own destiny and can set your own goals and can avoid a lot of the traps. It, like Ooh. there's there's yeah. a place for you, you went there you yeah went there. There's, a place for, <laughs> there's a place for vc funding so not to say yeah. all investment is bad yeah. um but it's not required. it creates some it creates some some challenges that can create bad culture right i mean that's that's a reality um I like that you went there. Uh, I, I totally agree. So um, I'm, I'm curious, do you think that, okay, so throughout the playbooks, adjust your go-to-market, you know, strategy to align with the way people want to buy today. I get that. But do you think there's a place for both? Like, you know, is there a place for more, you know, higher volume activities and, you know, higher quality activities? Or are you saying like, stop doing the high quality, uh, high quantity activities and focus on the high quality and have more qualified conversations with the right people with the right strategy. Yeah, I think that um, not to say that no one should be doing outbound sales. So I think there's absolutely a way to do outbound sales really effectively. It's really just challenging, like instead of doing a lot of these you know, volume based activities, like, is there a better way to spend your time to achieve the same outcome? 
And so, you know, a lot of like, honestly, a lot of the really savvy SDRs are actually extremely active on LinkedIn and dedicating their time to content creation and building a reputation as a subject matter expert in whatever field or industry that they're in. Um, And then leveraging that. um, So I'm sure when they do some outbound, they have recognition, people are more likely to respond, they've they've created some credibility, right? So there's no like black and white answer here. But I think it's like thinking critically about what am I doing? Am I just doing what you know, the best practices from 20 years told me to do, or like, am I doing something that makes sense for today? So it's not that you have to stop doing outbound and only generate inbound, but it's just, I'm challenging people to just think critically about um, what makes sense today and think about how you buy. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the thing that I always laugh about because even sales leaders or CEOs will want to (laughs) push this but then they'll be the first to admit that they'll never pick up a cold call or that they actually don't want to talk to a salesperson until they've done a certain amount of their own research um, or gotten a recommendation from a peer within a community. And so there's a disconnect because even people that will admit that they buy a certain way will still push a particular sales approach um, that they wouldn't even want to participate in. <laughs> mm. Do you think it's just lack of knowledge of how people want to buy or just a lack of awareness? I mean, certainly that's that's probably the case. I think it's a lack of critical thinking mm. and, a, and a lack of common sense. I think it's, oh, like we have to do things this way to build a company. And, and I'm just like, I'm going to build a company the way that like everybody talks about. Everyone's been talking about building their company and not challenging the status quo. So like for me, it just comes back to common sense and critical thinking. Like if people literally just took two seconds and thought about how they want to purchase a product, um, it would challenge so many assumptions that exist today and so many strategies that are in place. And so I think it's like this nature, this, you know, high pressure, high goals. I'm just going to like do the things that I'm supposed to do. Everyone is, it's socially acceptable for me to do these things and never take a minute to challenge or think for themselves. So that's the root cause issue in my opinion. Well, this is definitely going to get some people rethinking some things. (laughs) So I appreciate the conversation and appreciate learning a little bit more about your uh, journey any final thoughts and also, you know, where can people get into your world and learn about more of these things that you enjoy talking about? Yeah, for sure. I'm uh, pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. Um, and uh, you can check out refinelabs.com. Um, and we have our company podcast, State of Demand Gen podcast, and just launched a new one, The Marketing Movement. Um, so those are the best areas to find me and my team. Um, and yeah, I think closing thoughts, I would just say, Um, you know, kind of reinforcing the points I was just making around common sense and critical thinking. I think that um, I would encourage people to um, not necessarily take the way things have been done as the best way to do things now. And Mm -hmm. to really start with a blank sheet of paper, um, think for yourself um, and do things in, uh, try new things. Um, I think that um, if more and more people adopted that mind frame, I think that it would be a net positive all around. 
I agree. Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please write us a review, share the show with your friends. It really does help us out. And I'm also always listening for your feedback. You can go to salestransformation.fm, drop me a voice DM, and we will get back to you. Hey, you stuck around. That tells me you're serious about your own sales transformation. If you're tired of doing things the old way and want to get started in your journey with other people on the same path, head over to salescast.community and crush your numbers on your leaderboard. Yeah, it's free. Salescast.community. Send me a DM with your best pitch and mention this ad, and I might even give you free access to our best templates.